What do you see? Our eyes are used to seeing that which is good for us. Opportunities for our business, for our career, for our enjoyment. But as the author of Hebrews said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What do you see when you look at the cross? Pain, loneliness, despair. There are many people suffering who do not understand that Christ has taken all of this upon himself. For this reason, we want to challenge you. Choose a person you can make a commitment to for a year with the purpose of presenting Christ to them. This can be a friend, your boss, or a neighbor, anyone. Someone you will walk alongside, pray with, and help throughout the year 2020 with the sole objective of modeling the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Who do you see? Hey church, today we begin episode two of our series, Focus One 2.0. We're looking into the life of people in scripture that show us that we can make a difference, that God wants to use us to make a difference, to be the bridge between God and others. And this evening, we look into the life of Daniel. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn to Daniel chapter two, or you can just look on the screen as you'll see the text below. Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 24 through 35. So will you read along with me? It says, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king, the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. 
Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I want to jump right into the context of the passage this evening because maybe you are reading that and you're like, wait, what's going on? There's a dream. There's King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, he's interpreting the dream. God gave him this image. Well, here in Daniel, we are entering into around 600 to late 500 B.C. If you were with us last week in episode one, and we looked into the life of Nehemiah, who also was under the Babylonian rule in Babylon, but that was later in the empire's history. This is near the very beginning. Daniel is a man who was taken from Jerusalem by Babylon when they sieged and conquered Jerusalem. They took him with some of his friends to Babylon because they were of the best and brightest in that community, in that city. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was known as a man who was wise, a man who, in fact, was a genius. The empire had expanded profoundly all throughout the region. Their power was known throughout the whole world, and King Nebuchadnezzar had this this philosophy for how he would maintain the empire. One of the ways that he would do that is that he would bring the best and the brightest of the, the countries and of the cities and the regions that he conquered And he would bring them to Babylon, and they would enter into this three-year training program in what is kind of like a university. Here, they would learn about the language of Babylon, the literature of Babylon, the culture. And after three years, one of two things would happen to these men. They would either be sent back to their city, to their region, to their country to influence for the welfare and the good of Babylon from within. They would have been indoctrinated for three years, and they would go back to their homeland, and they would influence things for the good of Babylon. But the best and the brightest of that group would stay in Babylon and be advisors to the king, his wise men. And so here in the passage, we read about Daniel who interprets this dream for Nebuchadnezzar. But there is a lot that takes place right before this. In Daniel chapter 1, we hear how Daniel and his friends come to Babylon. They enter into the university, and there is this chief eunuch who is in charge of all of these new students. And Daniel is one of them. And he goes up to Daniel and to his friends, and he asks for their name. You have to imagine how this situation unfolded, how this scenario played out. The chief comes to Daniel and says, what is your name? And he says, my name is Daniel, Daniel, which in Hebrew means God is my judge. And the chief, being an intellectual and wanting to know more, he says, are you referring to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the judge over the kingdom? Daniel says, no, no, no. I'm referring to the king of kings, to the God who is the creator of all, the author of life, the one who is in control of everything. And he says, well, okay, that's interesting. And then Hananiah, it says, comes. And Hananiah says, well, my name 
in Hebrew means God shows grace. So the chief says, okay, are we talking about two different gods here? One is a God of judgment. That's who you're named after, Daniel. And then Hananiah, you're after a different God, right? One who shows grace and said, no, 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 no. Same God, one God who is the judge, but also shows grace. And then we have another friend, Mishael, and he comes and says, hey, my name, I want to give you a little bit more context of what we believe. My name means mercy or gift of God. So the chief says, let me get this straight. So you guys believe in a God who is a judge who shows grace and mercy, and it's a gift that he gives. Like, yeah, you got it. And then the last of the friends comes in, and his name is Azariah. And he says, let me kind of close the loop for you. My name is Azariah, and my name means God has helped or God does help. So the chief is thinking through all of this. Okay, so you believe in a God who is a judge, who shows grace and mercy as a gift, and who comes to your help? And they're like, you got it. That is the God that we believe in, as a God that we worship. That is the one true God. And the chief eunuch says, what could that, <laughs> that's not okay here in Babylon. That's not what we believe. And it's not okay for you to maintain those names and that identity. So I'm going to rename you. The beginning of this indoctrination training period. So they're renamed. Daniel, as we read in chapter 1, is called Belteshazzar which means that uh, he is a treasure of Bel. His name means treasure of Bel, which was one of the Babylonian gods. So he renames him after a Babylonian god. And then Hananiah's name is changed to Shadrach. And Shadrach means the command of Aku, or the moon god. And then the chief comes to to Misael, and he says, Misael, you are going to be called Meshach. And that name means who is like Aku, the moon god. And then lastly, Azariah, you're going to be called Abednego. And your name means servant of Nabu, another god. Do you see what's taking place here in Babylon? Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah. And Misael have these names that have been given to them. They have formed who they are and what they believe. They are representative of the identity that they own and they claim because of their faith. And now Babylon comes in and says, no, 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 no. It's not okay. We're going to rename you after our gods and our values, the things that we value and the things that we believe you should value as well. Babylon is attempting here to rename them so that they might change their identity. There is a renaming so that their identity may shift. And there's an important question that causes us to ask when we look at this. Church, who are you and what is your identity? Because there are all types of people, there are all types of forces, there are all types of arenas in this world that are seeking to rename you, to give you a new label, to alter and adjust your identity to fit what is culturally acceptable or culturally valued. 
as we see what takes place here. And you know this. We all know this. We all know that there are all types of things in the world competing for our attention so that they might rename us and relabel us and alter and adjust our identity to fit with what is accepted as right and as good. This takes place through multimedia, which is preaching a message at you and renaming you, relabeling you. This happens through the ever-changing American dream that tells you if you want to feel significant, if you want to feel valued, if you want to make a difference in your life, this is what you need to have. This is what you need to make for yourself. That happens in your company. Your company places values upon you and pushes an agenda upon you that you need to try to own as your identity. And if, if you're able to follow, if you're able to climb that corporate ladder, if you're able to reach that position and that title, well, then you're significant and you're fitting well within the company. There are politicians looking to rename you. There are pundits looking to rename you. The academic world is looking to rename you. It's happening here too. And these things are obvious to us. We know this. There are all types of forces and factors competing for our attention so they can rename us to affect and alter the identity that we own and that we claim. And these things are dangerous, but there's something far more dangerous, something more insidious and more subtle. And that is this. It is the current that runs under our culture. There are all these factors and people and institutions that are competing for your attention and seeking to rename and to relabel you, but there is a current underneath all of that that is more dangerous. And that's a current that says this to you and to me, that you need to make your own identity. That your identity is to be crafted by you. Only you can identify what is true and what is good and who you are. Don't let anyone or anything else tell you. Make it for yourself. Make your own identity. That is the current under which everything flows out of. Essentially, the message is this. Your identity is earned, not given. It is earned by you not given to you. And it's dangerous because when you pursue the creation of your own identity apart from Christ, it will lead you to confusion. Did you hear what I said? When you pursue the creation of your own identity apart from Christ, it will lead you to confusion. Here's what will happen. And maybe you struggle with this now. It will lead you to say, well, I'm not like that person. You're going to start comparing yourself. And then you're just going to start questioning yourself. Well, who am I? Am I significant? How come I haven't achieved that? I'm the same age as them, or I'm older than them. They have what I want. You begin to compare yourself. And when you compare yourself to other people because you're seeking to craft your own identity, now you begin to question whether or not you have value, whether or not you have significance, whether or not you will be, quote unquote, successful in life. You begin to compare yourself. Another thing that happens is that you begin to assume labels placed upon you by other people. Names given to you by other people. And you allow those names to affect your identity. 
Or you begin to act in a way that you know deep down is not really who you are. It's not how you want to live. It's not how you want to act. It's not truly your identity, but you want to act that way. You want to look that way. You want to sound like that. You want to live that lifestyle so that you can feel loved and accepted by the culture and by the people around you because you're seeking to create your own identity apart from Christ, which will lead you to confusion. And this is dangerous to fall into this current, to believe this current that you can just create and craft your own identity. It will lead you to confusion. But there's something even beneath that, something even beneath that that is even more dangerous. And that is this. It is to allow yourself to keep a name but change its meaning. It is to not recognize that that culture and that current that is pushing you to create your own identity and to form your own identity after what other people say and the values of the world around you and the values of your company and the the expectations of your friends and family. And so that you can create and craft your own identity. And then what happens is that you begin to maintain the same names that you've always held, but you change the meaning. This happens all the time in our culture. It's happening all around us. One of the ways that we see that is this. There's a, there's a very important word, a big word in our society right now, and that is the word tolerance. Tolerance used to mean that I disagree with you, but I believe that you have the right to that opinion. See, the name tolerance has a changed meaning now. Tolerance now means, this is my opinion. If you don't agree with it, I'm going to cancel you. If this is my opinion, if you don't agree with it, I'm going to unfriend you. This is my opinion. If you don't agree with it, you're evil. Same name, different meaning. Here's another one. Marriage. Marriage used to mean a covenant between two people. A covenant given by God, a binding commitment for richer, for poorer, for in sickness and in health, for better or worse till death do us part. It was a commitment, a covenant of love. You know what marriage means now in our society for many, many people? It's an attempt at love. An attempt at love with an expectation of failure. Same name different meaning. Here's one that I think most of us can relate to. The name Christian. The name Christian means follower of Christ and has meant historically someone who follows Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Someone committed to serving. Someone expecting sacrifice, someone engaged in the the church of Christ that he has established with his own blood, someone that lives generously, someone that's passionate about sharing the gospel, someone that wants to be the bridge for other people. But the word Christian, though that name is still around, the meaning for many has changed. From someone following Christ to somebody interested in Christ. 
interested in Christ, maybe socially conditioned to own that name, willing to serve and to sacrifice when it's convenient, certainly not okay with sharing your faith because you got to be tolerant and not interested in being the bridge between God and other people unless it really fits and all the stars align and you're comfortable and everyone's happy and there's no kind of pushback whatsoever. And generous when you have a surplus instead of as a lifestyle. Same name, different meaning. You see, there's a question that we have to ask when we consider the identity that we own, that we claim, and that's this. Do you recognize that your identity is Christian? If you believe in faith in Christ, is that your identity? Is that what's rooted deep in your soul that you are a follower of Christ? And here's why it matters. Because what your identity is will determine what you stand for. If your identity is that I am a follower of Christ, then what you will stand for is Christ and his way and his truth and the life that he has set out. But if your identity is something else, that thing is what you will stand for and what you will chase after as the way of living, as truth, and as the life set before you. Here we see with Daniel and his friends, a small group of believers that believe in God, their names even reflect that identity and that reality of their faith. And they are placed into this culture that wants to press upon them a different identity, a culture that immediately renames them after their own gods and their own values. A culture that will take them and train them in their language and their literature and their customs so that they might indoctrinate them with different truths and a different way to live and a different life. And Daniel and his friends knew this. They understood this, that Babylon stood for something. You see, capitals of empires stand for something. Washington, D.C. stands for something. Moscow stands for something. Paris stands for something. Caracas stands for something. And this is true of Babylon as well. So what did Babylon stand for? What did Daniel and his friends understand that Babylon was pressing upon them right as they entered through those gates and they came into that university and they met that chief? What does it stand for? We don't have to guess because Genesis chapter 11 tells us what Babylon, or as it's called there, Babel, stands for. The very beginnings of this city this was the mantra, come, let us build a city for ourselves, a tower up to the heavens, a signal that we don't need God, we are the creators. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build up walls so we don't have to be dispersed, that we can stay within here where it's comfortable, where we're building and fastening a culture and a city and a people for ourselves in the way that we want, according to our values and our customs and our truth. This was the Babylon that Daniel and his friends enter into, a city for itself, a city that says that man is creator, not God, 
a city that says that you need to make a name for yourself. You create your own identity. Your identity is not given by God to you. Stay within these walls where it's comfortable. Don't go out and disperse. Don't seek to be a bridge for other people. You see, the Bible is a tale of two cities in many ways. There's one city, the city of God. And that city recognizes that God is the creator and that God makes your name great through him. He gives you your identity and that he calls you, in fact, to leave the comfort of the city walls to be a bridge for other people so that you might bring them into that city to meet that creator who is a judge but who shows grace and mercy as a gift and comes to people in their time of need as a help. That's the city of God. But then there's a city of man that you see all throughout Scripture and you see here in Daniel chapter 2. And that is a city where you are the creator. And you make a name for yourself through your own hard work. And you build up walls for yourself so you can maintain power within your little world and you can create comfort for yourself. The city of God and the city of man. And there's a question that we have to ask ourselves when we recognize that and see that. And that is, what city are you living for? What city are you living for? Because what city you're living for will reveal what you stand for. Because we all live for one or the other, and Daniel and his friends lived for the city of God. How do we know that? Well, because they were willing to take a stand for their faith time and time and time again in this book. Right before Daniel chapter 2, they're told that they're to eat the food and drink the wine that comes from the the king's table, and they refuse. Now, we don't know exactly why they refuse, Maybe the food wasn't kosher. Possibly it was sacrificed to idols and to false gods. And, but what we, we know is that Daniel says, I won't eat of that food because it will defile me. What an interesting thing to say. I won't eat of that food because it will defile me. You see, Daniel is picking up on something and is sharing something that is fleshed out in the New Testament, and that is this, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That you are a sacred vessel. That is part of your identity. When when you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within you, and you are a sacred vessel, and it matters what you do with your body. Do you allow yourself to be defiled? Daniel and his friends say, we're not going to be defiled. We're not going to eat that food as as delicious as it may be. We're not going to drink that wine. And they take that stand and God protects them. They only eat vegetables and yet they are stronger than all the others that are eating the food from the table and drinking the wine. There's another story later where you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're called to bow down before the golden calf or through the golden statue And they refuse, and the punishment is that they're going to be thrown into the furnace, burned up. They're about to go into the furnace, and they ask them, you know, are you going to recant, or what's going to happen? And here's their response, burn us up. Burn us up. We don't live for the city of man. We live for the city of God. Our identity is in God through our faith. Burn us up. 
says that they go into the furnace. They look into the furnace to see them, and they see not three people, but a fourth person, a God who is a judge that shows grace and mercy as a gift and comes to their help, protects them. They come out unscathed. And then famously, Daniel prays when there was a decree that he was not allowed to, and yet he continues to pray to his God because he lives for the city of God and not the city of man. And he's thrown into the lion's den, and God protects him. He comes out the next day with friends, lion friends, unharmed. You see, their identity was rooted in God through faith. And the question for them was not, what city do we live in? We were in Jerusalem, now we're in Babylon. The question is not, what city do we live in? The question is, what city do we live for? And that's the same question for you. It's not what city do you live in and its values and its difficulties. It's what city do you live for? That's the question. And so have you accepted your identity in Christ as your true identity? Is that rooted in your soul? Because people will try to change your name. People will try to relabel you. But they can't change your identity. Church, they can't change your identity. When your identity is rooted in Christ, you live for the city of God and not the city of man. And you understand that God gives you opportunities to be the bridge for other people. And part of the way that he does that is in your workplace. In a place that you spend most of your time at work, in your career. And that's what happens here with Daniel. Daniel's in a difficult culture, in a difficult environment. King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, this very disturbing dream, and he goes out to all of his wise men that he's been training, and he is the best and the brightest in the capital, and he says, hey, uh, can someone help interpret this dream? And nobody can. King Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He thinks to himself, why do I have this whole system, this whole university? I'm going to burn it down. I'm going to kill all the wise men in Babylon. And then Daniel gets with his friends, and it says that they pray that God might show him the mystery of this dream and its interpretation, that God might use him in his workplace, in his vocation, where God has him for the king, and they pray. So pause there. When is the last time that on your way to work, you prayed that God might give you wisdom and discernment as you enter into that workplace. When is the last time that you, you, you took a moment and you prayed, God, help me with wisdom and discernment that I might look for opportunities today to reveal your glory, that I might be used by you. You see, Daniel seeks out this opportunity. He sees that there's a need, there's an opportunity that God wants to use him to reveal God's glory and who he is, and he prays for that opportunity, and God grants him that opportunity. He shows him what the dream was about and the interpretation, so Daniel then comes to the king, and he says, listen, I understand what your dream is. Here is the dream, and he fleshes it out, and he says, you saw this big colossus-type figure made of many different metals. And then there was this stone uncut from human hands that 
crushed all of the metals and the clay into pieces. And then that stone overtook all of those metals. They were wiped away, and that stone became a mountain that covered the whole earth. And King Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. In particular, after Daniel shares the interpretation, and he elevates Daniel as the head over all of the wise men in Babylon, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are also elevated in their positions as well. And it all started with them praying. God, help us. Show us the mystery. Show us how you want us to use us in this environment, in this kingdom, in this job. It's difficult, but use us. You see, I think sometimes we approach our work with this kind of thought process. How can I fit my faith into my job? Maybe you've thought, how can I fit my faith into my job? And when you think like that, your faith will only show up in your job when it's convenient and when it feels natural, which oftentimes doesn't come around. How can I fit my faith into my job? Because many of us think, well, I'm here to do a job. That's primary. And if there's opportunities for me to squeeze my faith in, then I'll squeeze my faith in. But that's a question of identity, right? Are you a doctor first or are you a, a Christian first? Are you an artist first or a Christian first? Are you a teacher first or a Christian first? Are you a lawyer first or a Christian first? Are you a business person first or a Christian first? Insert your title. Does that come before your faith? Is your treasure your title? Ask yourself, that's a hard question to ask. Is my treasure my title? Or is my treasure my faith? You see, I know some of you have lost your job in this pandemic. You're struggling to find work. Well, see, there's good news for you too, and that is that your treasure is not in your title or lack thereof. You are not more valuable or more significant because you have a job or because you have this position. I know it's difficult. I understand that, and, and God is, is a God who comes to help and show grace Mercy as a gift. But don't think that your identity is found in your work or, your, or lack thereof. You see, church, we are not called to fit our faith into our work. We're called to follow our faith in our work. There's a big difference between those two things. We don't fit our faith into our work. We follow our faith into our work. When you follow your faith into your work, you are praying for opportunities for God to use you. You're saying, God, show me, give me wisdom, give me discernment. My identity is not this job. It is not the paycheck. It is not the title. It is not the accolades. My identity is rooted in you, Christ. Help me not to get that confused. I want to follow my faith into my work. It's an action step I want to give you this week. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, when you get in the car, or you get out of the condo to walk to your office, or you wake up and you make coffee to go sit on your couch and do work, will you pray to God and say, God, show me how to follow my faith in my work today. Show me how to follow my faith in my work today. You see, Daniel does that. And he explains that 
This dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had is a picture of Babylon as the kingdom, the head of the Colossus that was gold. And then all the subsequent kingdoms that would fall after all form this Colossus-like figure. But that one day, it will be made known that there is a stone that was not cut by human hands. A divine stone that will destroy all of those kingdoms and break them into pieces where they will be no more, and that divine stone will be established as a mountain that will cover the whole world. You see, David saw in part what we see in full. What is that? Well, Peter tells us. First Peter 2, he says this, starting in verse 4. He says, as you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, will not be put to shame. You see, this stone, this divine stone that Daniel sees that will destroy all of the other kingdoms and establish this eternal kingdom that will cover the whole world, that divine stone is Christ, the cornerstone, the one on which we stand. You see, we don't stand on kingdoms and what they can offer us. Our identity is not in the city of man. We do not follow after it. We do not stand for it. We stand for the city of God. Our identity is rooted in Christ because we are standing on the stone, the living divine stone that is Christ. And he makes us through faith living stones ourselves to be built up as a spiritual house, it says. To be built up as the church together. So that through him, we might not be put to shame. You see, church, You are a living stone because through faith in Christ, you stand on the divine stone that is Christ because of his death and the shame that he endured. You will not be put to shame. You can live for a kingdom that is is established and will be eternal, a kingdom that covers the whole world that does not compare to the kingdoms of this world. That is your identity. That is who you are. Your identity is given to you through that divine stone, that living stone, Christ, who makes you yourself a living stone through faith in him. So I pray that you would be the bridge in your workplace in particular between God and those that are far from him, that you would go out of the walls of your comfort, not looking to make a name for yourself, but owning the name that's been given to you, and that you would follow your faith into your work. Don't look to fit it in. Because there is great joy there, and God will be with you as he was with Daniel and his friends. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that we don't have to navigate life confused and wondering who we are and whether or not we're valuable and significant. You tell us who we are. We are sons and daughters of the king. We are living stones, a royal priesthood built up as a spiritual house through you, Christ, the divine stone, the cornerstone. 
Would we stand upon you? Would we live for your kingdom and your city, God, and not the city of man? It pales in comparison. Help us to enter into our workplace tomorrow following our faith, not looking to fit it in. Give us that courage. Give us a heart to pray and to seek you and look for opportunities to be the bridge that many might come to know you, a God who is a judge, but a God who shows grace and mercy as a gift and comes to our help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.